Hey, good morning. How we doing? Take your Bibles, turn to Psalm 19. Um, this is my first time at the 10 o'clock service. I've been going to a 9 o'clock service for over 10 years, and uh, my timing's all screwed up. So I woke up this morning, normal time, 6.30. I was planning on being here by 7.30, and then I'm like, why would I want to get there by 7.30? It doesn't start till 10. So I had an hour to kill, and uh, I turned on TBN, and I watched two sermons back-to-back, one by Joel Olstein, one by Stephen Furtig. That's not an endorsement. That's not an admission. That's just kind of what I did. And uh, it was interesting. They both preached the exact same message. Different passages, but the exact same point. Uh, Olstein was preaching from an Old Testament passage where Elijah goes to a woman and says, if you're willing to give me food, if you'll take that leap of faith, then um, God will make it so that your oil and your flour never run out. And then I watched Steve Furtig right after that, and Steve was teaching from the story of Jesus taking the five loaves and the two fishes, and how God can take what he's given us if we follow him in faith and make it everything we need. And I'm sitting there going, I'm kind of preaching the same message. This is weird. With one difference, I do believe that God's given us everything that we need for life and for godliness. It's his word. And uh, we're in a season right now called Christian Worldview. This series is going to take us all the way till uh, December and Christmas. This is the fifth week that we've been studying what I would call the foundations. And we spent some time just basically going through some basic doctrine. What are the things that we as followers of Jesus Christ believe and how does that impact our worldview? And then next week the series shifts because we begin to focus on areas where a Christian worldview is currently in conflict, where it rubs against, where it's abrasive to what our culture is embracing as far as what our culture values, what it holds dear, what its ideals are. So we've already looked at who God is in week one. We looked at who uh, we are as men in week two, that we're created in the image of God and that as followers of Jesus Christ from 1 Peter, we are set apart. Then we looked at sin from Jeremiah 17, that our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can even understand the level of our sin? And then last week we were in Acts looking at the idea of salvation, that there is no other name that you can call on where you can be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're in Psalm 19, finishing this foundations section of this study, looking at God's Word. So the reason that I think that this week is kind of critical is because for the rest of this series, I think you're going to hear us say over and over again, so, so what does God's Word say? In contrast to what culture is believing or doing, what does God's Word say? So we've got to understand what we believe about God's Word. So if you were to go onto our website, uh, harvestspringlake.org, and you were to look at this page that we have there under the About section, what we believe, about the fourth or fifth paragraph down, we address the Scriptures or God's Word. And here's what we wrote. It says, we believe in the scriptures of the we believe in the scriptures of the Old Testament and New Testament as verbally inspired by God and inerrant in the original writing. We believe the 66 books of the Old and New Testament are God's completed and sufficient revelation for the total well-being of mankind. So make no doubt what we believe. It's stated right there as far as what we believe. We believe that it is sufficient. We believe that it is God's word, his message to us. And then we quote several different passages. I'll highlight two of them. Second Timothy 3 says that all scripture is breathed out by God, breathed out. So God spoke the world into existence and then he breathed out. He is the source of his word. He 
Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And then 2 Peter 1.21 says, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this description of Scripture with these verses behind it, we're making the argument that we hold something special when we pick up God's Word. It's God's revelation. He's revealing His truth to us. The Creator of the universe, our Master, has a plan, and He's written that in a book, and that book is called the Bible. This is what we believe, and in the old days, we would have said this is the doctrinal statement before the word doctrine became really scary. But we do study doctrine, and what I would say is all of us function, we all go through life believing some doctrine, whether you believe in God or not. Doctrine, just I'll give you some criteria for something to be a doctrine. It has to be something that you can't prove but you believe. It has to be something that impacts the way that you live, and it has to be something that you promote. So I was sitting with a, a young man this week who kind of looked at me and said, I just believe that everyone should be able to do whatever they want to do, that we all have our own version of truth. Okay, that's a doctrinal statement that he just made. He, he told you what he believed. He can't prove it. That determines the way that he lives his life. It flows out into his actions, and he's promoting it. He's saying, well, I just think everyone should be allowed to do what they want to do. So as we go to Psalm 19, you just need to understand there's, there's doctrine in Psalm 19. It's going to be God's Word describing itself. It's what God's Word says about God's Word. Psalm 19, I would say, is the most concise presentation in all of Scripture of the benefits and the value of God's Word. It's a Psalm of David. And, and I was stuck, should I teach on Psalm 19, another Psalm that does a wonderful job on this is Psalm 119, but that has 176 verses, and y'all didn't want to hear me preach that. So we're going to be in these 14 verses today in Psalm 19. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Memoirs on the Psalms or Reflections on the Psalms. He says Psalm 19 is probably the greatest psalm in all the Psalter. Let's jump in, verse 1. It says this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Verse 4, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has sent a, set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. I don't have a lot of points in my notes. If you're keeping notes, the big idea is this. God's word is universal. It is verbal. It is valuable. And it is personal. Just four points. Here's the first one. Before God ever wrote down his words in the written word, he gave us the wordless word. He gave us creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. What the psalmist David is saying, if you have a question of whether God exists, look around. Look at creation. Um, Friday night we had an event here at this campus. It was party with the pastors. And I knew it was at this campus because when I went to Spring Lake campus, nobody was there. So then I drove to this campus. I got here right as the thing was starting. But as we were driving up to this campus, um, 
I don't know what was going on. I think it had rained a little bit earlier. There were some dark clouds, but the clouds were breaking through. The sun was coming off the lake. If you were at Grand Haven football game, you should have seen this too. But all of a sudden, we saw the starting of a rainbow. Saw the southern end of it. And Kristen's like, that might be the brightest rainbow I've ever seen. That thing is just glowing. And by the time we got to church, just in a couple minutes, it had made its full arc. We could see the whole thing. There was actually a little bit of a double rainbow there as we pulled into church. It was spectacular. Creation declares the glory of God. And what David is saying, he's going, just look in the sky. If you're wondering if there's a God, just look around you. And, and he points to the macro universe. He could make the same argument, not just through a telescope, but through a microscope. Every cell in your body screams because of its complexity and design, that there is a designer and that there is a creator. God's glory is on full display through his creation. His power is on full display. His creativity, his imagination, all of it is on full display. Now, theologians call this general revelation. It's things that everyone can see, and it is nonverbal communication. Look at verse 3. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Now, we all understand nonverbal communication. I was reminded of this last week. I was down in Orlando at my brother-in-law's church, and I was preaching there, and that means my sister-in-law is sitting there, and, um, well, she's difficult to preach to. I, I, I don't look at her when I'm preaching. I make a specific point not to look where Carla is, because when I'm preaching and Carla's in the room, I'll look down at Carla, and all of a sudden she'll go, And I'll be like, oh, crud, I got something on my face. So, and then I become really self-conscious. So what I do is I'm like, okay, look in your Bible right now. And as you're looking down in your Bible, I'm like, I'm like trying to wipe it off like this. And then I'll look at her again and she'll be like. And I'm like, she's messing with me. I should have known. So, so nonverbal communication. When, when you're in a counseling room, this nonverbal communication, we call it halo data. You can look at the couple in a marriage counseling context and you can kind of figure out what's going on. Can you throw that next picture up? Like that. So that's, if that's a marriage counseling, are you guys able to determine some of the things that are going on? Like, who doesn't want to be there? Okay, it's pretty obvious. Sat with a guy this week, came into my office, and he's just like this. I'm like, how you doing? So good? Comfortable? Yeah. Well, you don't seem real happy. Your arms are crossed. I'm comfortable this way. Okay, you're communicating something whether you realize it or not. Now, the problem with nonverbal communication is though it communicates something, we don't always know the cause. Like we can look at that guy and we can say, okay, something's not right here, but we don't know what it is. Maybe he just doesn't want to be in the counseling room. Maybe he doesn't like the counselor. Maybe his wife's been talking for an hour and a half nonstop. <laughs> Maybe he's checking his phone and he's looking at the Lions scores or the Pistons scores or the Tigers scores or any Detroit team scores. Like, we don't know what's ticked him off. We've got general revelation and it just tells us some things, but it doesn't tell us everything. And it's important for you to understand that because the Bible's really clear on this. It says this in Romans 1 verse 19, speaking of general revelation of the creation, it says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world, in all things that have been made, listen, so they are without excuse. So, so here's what God's Word is saying. General revelation, the heavens declare the glory of God. They let you know that God exists, but they can't save you, but they can condemn you. General revelation is enough for us to acknowledge that there is a God and it is enough to bring condemnation, but it cannot save. General revelation has its limitations. David starts Psalm, 1, Psalm 19 with six verses talking about general revelation. Listen, nature, creation, our universe should have this impact on us. We should look at the beauty of nature like I would look at an artist who paints a picture or someone who writes a song that I like, and I'm like, okay, who's the artist? Who's the songwriter? Who's the painter? What was he trying to communicate through this work of art? The general revelation creation gives us proof that there is an artist or a designer, but it doesn't allow us to know him. The Bible says it brings condemnation not salvation. Let's keep going. Look at verse 7. The first point was the wordless word. The second is this, the perfect word. Where did I get that? Oh yeah, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. The perfect word, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true, and righteous altogether. In those three verses, you have six titles for Scripture. Law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, and rules. You have six characteristics of Scripture. It is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. And you have six benefits. It revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It endures forever. And it is righteous altogether. The intent of these verses is to go even beyond saying that, this, that Scripture lacks nothing. What, what, what it's communicating is it possesses everything that we need. Now, before we get into it, I'm going to look at some of those descriptors and some of those benefits to Scripture in just a minute, but I don't want you to miss maybe one of the most important things in verse 7 through 9, six times in three verses, of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord. There's a point that David is making. Scripture, God's Word, is of the Lord. Now, it's interesting. We don't get this in our English reading. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The Hebrew word used there is Elohim. It is a broad term. It is a generic term. It is an impersonal term for God. When you get to verses 7, 8, and 9, and six times you see repeated, of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord. Well, that's God's given name. That's the name that he gave to Israel. That name is Yahweh. It is his personal name. I was preaching last night. I saw a couple different of our elders in the room. One of our elders is Randy Moeller. He was a dentist. He's a doctor. So if I were to walk into his office and I didn't know Randy really well, I would say, hello, Dr. Moeller. And um, he might look at me and say, oh, don't call me doctor. You can call me Randy. Not his title, but his personal name. One of our 
other elders is, is Tim Penning. He is a prof at Grand Valley University. He's not only a prof, but he's a doctor. He has more degrees than Fahrenheit. Really smart guy, okay? And uh, if I were to walk into his office, it would be, hello, Prof Penning, or hello, Dr. Penning, and he would say, no, call me Tim. A personal name. See, see, what the Word of God does is it takes an impersonal creator that we can be aware of through creation, and it says, no, 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 this, this creator, he's got a personal name. Call me Yahweh, call me Yeshua, call me Jesus. See, if you go to the New Testament, just with a couple quick cross-references, I'll give these to you. John 1, 3 says, speaking of Jesus, all things were made through him, and without him, not anything was made that was made. Hebrews 1, 2 says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So what's happening is, in these three verses, he's going to give you six titles, six characteristics, and six benefits of God's word to us. And it equips us with everything we need. But I got to tell you, I just don't think we often understand what we're sitting on, what we got, the value of this thing that we can hold in our hands called God's word. And I also understand that I'm writing and, and speaking against the backdrop of a culture that denies any meta-narrative or any story or any religion or any system that contains absolute truth and absolute knowledge. It's interesting, Newsweek magazine, they ran a cover article, and the cover article asked this two-word question. It just said, whose values? Like, like, where is our culture getting its values from today? Who's defining what our culture holds as valuable. Let me give you a couple of quotes from the article. They'll be on the screen. It said this, it said, after a 30-year spree of unlimited personal freedom, after 30 years of sneering at all the, odd, uh, uh, sneering at all the old values of self-control, chastity, honesty, thrift, modesty, and self-denial, our entire society is waking up with a monstrous hangover and is now facing a values vacuum. How many would agree with that statement? Is that a fairly accurate description of our culture that we're struggling to define what we value? The article goes on and says, these value questions, hear this, secular writer writing this, about the nagging sense that unlimited personal freedom and ramp rampaging materialism yield only greater hungers and lonelier nights have been quiet American obsessions for some time now and the source of deep, vexing national anxiety. Personal freedoms have become our country's greatest virtue. Tolerance of personal preference is a thing that we're taught to defend at all costs. This extreme individual, individualism which we've embraced, that we have the authority to determine what's right and wrong for ourselves and to pursue whatever makes us happy. So... The question is, is it actually making us happy? I think Newsweek's title nails it, Whose Values? How do we determine what we as a culture hold valuable? What holds us together? What do we cling to as being true and good? I, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of Newsweek and read the article for yourself. Only problem it was written in 1992, 29 years ago. 
what prompted this article 29 years ago? Well, there was a, a social debate. Vice President Dan Quayle had come out publicly and condemned the number one sitcom, Murphy Brown, for presenting a character, the main character, Murphy Brown, as having a child out of wedlock. He was bemoaning the spread of cable TV, which, to quote him, said, was dividing our country into demographic slivers. It was before 9-11, it was before the internet, it was before most social media, it was before YouTube, it was before Netflix, it was before smartphones, it was before anybody had ever heard of the Kardashians. And God's people said amen, right? Like, think about that. Twenty-nine years ago, here's what the article says. In the 60s and 70s, we binged on sex and drugs and woke up to addiction. In the 1980s, we binged on materialism and woke up to debt. It's interesting, the article mourns the fact that in 1992, our country was $4 trillion in debt, a staggering number, right? Except today we're $28 trillion in debt. So, so if they were going to update this article and talk about the 2000s, what would they say? Maybe they would say, in the 2000s, we binged on social media and personal and free expression and woke up to hostility and despair. If we were hungover in 1992, we are full-blown alcoholics today. So our country continues down this spiral of not understanding how to determine its own values, what is valuable, what is true, and in stark contrast to it, the psalmist thousands of years ago in Psalm 19 makes these declarations as it relates to God's word. I'll try to go through them quickly. Look at verse 7. You can put that chart up if you would. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. That word perfect means flawless. It has no defect. It is any facet in which you study God's word. It is perfect. It revives the soul. That word revives the soul, it implies that there's already something wrong with the soul. You, you revive something that's asleep. You revive something if it needs to be brought back to life. You, need to, you revive something if it needs to be sobered up. To be revived, it means that you're no longer vived, if that's such a word. There's a problem that has to be corrected. And it's interesting, David will write in Psalm 23, he leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul. That word restores and revives are the same word. It, it indicates that there's something that is restless that needs to be addressed in our soul. Now, there's an old hymn. I don't want to argue with old, old hymns and stuff that you guys know and hold dear, but some of you guys know that old hymn, Every Day with Jesus is Sweeter Than the Day Before. Anybody remember that? Okay. It's true, kind of. Like, I get what the author is trying to say, that the longer we walk with Jesus, the sweeter it gets. But I don't know if that's true of every day. Because i got to tell you, there's days where my soul needs to be restored, where my confidence needs to be revived. There's good days, there's difficult days, and there's very hard days. 
Every day isn't the same. And as we go through life and we face trials and temptations and persecutions and suffering or whatever it is, man, there's some days where I can honestly say my soul needs some reviving. And what the psalmist is saying is God's word has the power to revive and to restore my soul. Goes on and says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That word testimony, think courtroom. There's a, there's a jury, there's going to be a verdict, right, wrong, guilty, innocent, and the person taking the stand is God Almighty, the Creator God. His testimony, you can rely on it. It is sure. It's interesting. Peter, one of the disciples, he writes this in 2 Peter verse 1. He's remembering back to when he was on a mountain with two of the other disciples and he saw Jesus revealed in his full heavenly glory. Listen to what he writes. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice, and the voice was born by him, by the majestic glory that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven and we were with him on the high, on the high mountain. Look at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which we would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, we saw Jesus fully glorified. We were there when we heard God the Father say, this is my beloved Son. We've seen it all, and the Word is a better testimony than that. It is more reliable. It is more sure. That's quite a statement from Peter. He says, the Word of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. That, that word wisdom in the Hebrew, it means skill in living, skill in navigating life. I, I tried to remember a song last night when I was preaching this on the spot. I couldn't do it. I thought it was Tom Petty, and I got him confused with Rod Stewart, which is just terrible. Um, Rod Stewart wrote a song, and in the song, the lyrics say this, and maybe some of you remember it. It says, I wish that I knew what I knew now when I was younger. Like, I, I wish I knew the things that I know today when I was younger. So, so I'll pick on Randy for a minute, okay? Randy, how old are you? Okay, you're 39, okay? So, so think back to when you were a 19-year-old. Let's go back 20 years with you. What was that guy like? What did he value? Did you like him? Don't look at your wife. She liked you. Did you like you? Like, I mean, like, I mean if you look back like 20 years, most of us would look back and go, that guy was kind of stupid. How about 29-year-old Randy? Like, I I'm giving you some benefit of the doubt. I think you're probably smarter at 39 than you were at 29 than you were at 19. I think some of us would look back and say, man, 10 years ago, I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. Like, like 10 years ago, I was starting a church. I wish I knew some of the things that I knew now back then. I would have done some things differently. Anybody else feel that way? So, so, so here's the problem. If we can look back and say, that version of me 10 years ago wasn't as smart as I thought he was, what does that imply that we'll be thinking about ourselves 10 years from now? Well, we weren't as smart as we thought we were now. A couple more years, we might be looking back and going, man, we thought some pretty stupid things back then. We did some pretty stupid things. We made some pretty stupid choices. And what David is saying is he's saying the word of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. Scripture can stop that pattern today if we give it attention. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. 
precepts are rules. Since when do rules rejoice the heart? That's the paradox in verse 8. The word right there means this. It's a straight edge. It's a level. More than a decade ago, my wife learned not to have me hang pictures because I don't use a level. I just kind of eye it up and it looks good. And she's like, no, good isn't good. It's got to be level. And I'm like, well, nobody can tell. It doesn't matter if I'm perfectly straight. If I didn't use a level, she knows and she can tell that it's not level. See, see the word of the Lord is that thing that makes sure that the building is straight, that the foundation is sure, that our lives are built upon something that we can rely on. The precepts, the rules of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. It's interesting. You can't trust your judgment on what you think is best for you. Your judgment changes, society changes, cultural norms change. The only thing that is level, the only thing that is sure, the only precepts that are right is the Word of God. And we've got this idea, this notion as a culture that any rules, any authority is restrictive, oppressive, and steals our joy, and it just ain't true. The truth is this, you got to get yourself under the right authority, under the right set of rules, or the right set of boundaries. Parents, you know this. If, if you raise your kids with no boundaries, they, they, they think it's fun for a while, but pretty soon they don't even know where the limits are. We found with our kids that if they kind of know what the bedtimes are and they kind of know what the schedule is and they kind of know when the curfews are, understanding what the rules are, give them a sense of, I, I, I get what's right or wrong. I understand the boundaries. It's not boundaries that are wrong in and of themselves. Get yourself under the right boundaries. Get yourself under the boundaries that are set for you by a creator God who loves you. Goes on and says, the commandments of the Lord are pure enlightening the eyes. That word pure, I think a better translation is clear. It's transparent. It's easily understood. It's accessible. God's word is clear. Now, we could talk about differences of opinion or doctrinal differences, or, but the majority of God's word is easily understood. I could hand this chapter to a 12-year-old, have them read it. They could explain it to you. And though there's parts that are difficult, the majority of God's instruction is incredibly clear, and it says that it enlightens the eyes. It's interesting, in contrast to enlightening the eyes, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, speaking of unbelievers, it says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In some ways, the only people that have a clear worldview as it relates to our universe, as it relates to who we are, how life ought to be, is the follower of Jesus Christ because the word of God enlightens the eyes. And then it says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Please, please understand, when you see that word fear, some fear is actually healthy, right? Like, if, if you've got a young kid and they're reaching up onto the stove, the fear of getting burnt should stop them from touching a hot stove. That's a fear that is healthy, as it relates to the fear of the Lord, let me just give you a definition. The fear of the Lord is the attitude of heart that seeks a right relationship to the fear source, which is God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We would read in Proverbs, there should be some fear of the Lord. Here's a question. Do you fear the Lord? Some fear is healthy. This Wednesday, um, I got back my car. I had 
owned my car for a week, then I hit a deer in the beginning of July, and it's been in the shop for three months. And I got the car back on Wednesday, and on Wednesday I was driving up north and was happened to be in the very spot where I hit the deer three months ago. I had a healthy fear. Like I was looking around for those critters running across the road. I had both hands on the steering wheel. I was driving a little slower because I didn't want to suffer the consequences of hitting another deer the first day I got my car back. It's a healthy fear. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. And then one more, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God's word is true. But boy, I just wish as I went through life, I had something that no matter the circumstance, no matter where I was, I could trust it. I could know that it was true. God's word is true. It is righteous altogether. It endures forever. It is always true. It is always righteous. That was true a thousand years from ago. That's going to be true a thousand years from now. God's word is always true. So we've got the wordless word, the perfect word. Let's keep going. Verse 10, the priceless word. Verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Verse 11, moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. So just very quickly in those verses 10 and 11, it says that our God's word for us should be our greatest treasure. It's more desirable than gold. It should be our greatest pleasure. It is sweeter than the honey and the drippings of a honeycomb. And it should be our greatest protector. By them, your servant is warned. And I would just ask this question, how differently would we live if we really believed that? Because most, inside and outside the church, if we were to judge them by their choices and by their actions, if we were to judge ourselves, I think too often we would have to come to the conclusion that we really don't believe that that is true about God's Word. There's two organizations. One of them is called Back to the Bible, and the other is called the Center for Biblical Engagement. They've been seeking to answer this question. They've been doing surveys for, for several years, even decades, answering this question, why do so many people own Bibles but so few people read them? It's interesting. They've surveyed more than 400,000 people. This is a massive survey, and it's interesting to look at the results that this survey has produced. Here's what they found. It says, for those people who read the Bible three times or less a week, the life changes they experience are minimal. There's no life transformation. Reading the Bible one time a week, two times a week, three times a week, just coming on Sunday mornings, hearing a message, it's not transformative in people's lives. But they found something interesting happened from going from three days a week to four days a week, from a minority of the time to a majority of time. For those people that read the Bible more than four times a week, here's what happens. That group is 407 times, or 407% more likely to memorize Scripture, 228% more likely to share their faith with others. For those who read the Bible four times a week or more, they're 59% less likely to view pornography. They are 30% less likely to struggle with loneliness. They refer to this as the power of four. The argument that they're making is let God's word be a regular practice 
for those who spend more days in God's word than the days they spend out of God's word, it produces life transformation. Look at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of the great transgression. These verses messed with me a little bit this week. I was trying to understand them because in verse 12, there's this paradox that says, who can discern his errors? And we've already studied the nature of sin, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And David is echoing what Jeremiah wrote. He's saying, I am so sinful, I can't even see my own sin. Even as I compare it to God's word, there are things that I know that are hidden from me that I don't even understand where I'm falling short. Then he says, keep me back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And then he says, then I shall be blameless. And the question becomes, how in the world am I blameless if I can't even see my own sin clearly? See, where general revelation introduces us to a creator, but it can't save. What what God's word does is it exposes our heart and the fact that we are completely sinful. Please hear me. For God's word to be effective in your life first, it's got to wreck you. You've got to see yourself for who you are. You've got to see God as holy. And then the problem is, what do you do next? Because what religious people do is they come up with systems and ways and behavior that they believe will make them acceptable in God's sight. And if you read God's word to look at the rules, to know what you're supposed to do to make God like you, Scripture will destroy you. Jesus fought against this his entire earthly ministry with the scribes and the Pharisees who believed that they were blameless and above reproach because of the things that they did. And David is presenting this, this paradox. I want to be blameless, but I can't even understand the depths of my sin. How do we resolve the paradox? Well, we've looked at the wordless word, the perfect word, the priceless word. Maybe the most important verse is the last, verse 14. David lets out this cry, the the living word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Two most important words in the entire psalm are the last two, my redeemer. General revelation only condemns. Scripture makes us aware of our need. And it also introduces us to Jesus, our Redeemer. Galatians is very clear on this. Paul writes to the church in Galatia, Galatians 3.24, the law was our guardian, or it was our tutor, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. You can know every rule in the Bible. You can live a moral life according to God's law. It will never save you. Creation, there's a God. Scripture, we have a need. Now we're introduced to my Redeemer who can make us blameless and acceptable in God's sight. It's interesting. So often we pick up the Bible. It's like, okay, what can I get out of this? What do I need to learn? What does it say about me? Primarily, the Bible isn't even about you. It's revealing over and over and over again our need for a Savior and then presenting you with Jesus as the solution to the universal problem 
that there is a creator who is holy and we are sinful and he bridges the gap. Christianity alone doesn't minimize that we have fallen short. Christianity alone provides a substitute. So why do you read God's word? To know your Savior better. Let me ask you to do this. Would you just bow your heads for a second? All of history, all of creation, all of this book tells the story of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the better Adam. He passed the test that Adam failed in the garden and his obedience is now imputed to us so that when we stand before a holy God, we are seen as blameless because of what he's done in our place. Jesus is the better Abel. His blood doesn't cry out for vengeance, but it cries out for our acquittal. Jesus is a better Abraham. He's a better Isaac because Isaac was offered by his father. Jesus was sacrificed by his father. When Jesus looks at Abraham on the mountain and says, now I know that you love me because you wouldn't withhold your son from me, Jesus says that I've demonstrated my love to you because while you were yet sinners, I sent my son. Christ died for you. Jesus is the better Joseph. He stands at the right hand of the king and uses his power to forgive those who betrayed him and uses his position to save them. He's the better Job. He's the true innocent sufferer who then intercedes on behalf of his stupid friends. That's us. He's the better Esther. He didn't just risk his life to save his people. He offered his life to save his people. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your wordless word. The fact that you have made yourself visible. You have declared, you have proclaimed yourself through the creation. Father, I would pray that we would be thankful for your written word, that we wouldn't take it for granted just because it's so available to us. And Father, more than all else, we thank you for your living word, your son. In the beginning was the word, your son, the center of all things. Father, we thank you that you demonstrated your love for us through what you've made, through your word, but most, most importantly, through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the cross. It's in his name we pray. Amen.